With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Ladies and gentlemen, it is showtime. Please welcome the team of the Fulhamish Podcast. It's the Fulhamish Podcast, your independent voice of Fulham FC. I think all Fulham fans had a little spring in their step this week after a convincing away win at Goodison Park re-railed the Fulham train that taken a little detour of late. Historically, at Everton, wins had been as rare as Harrison Reed goals, but we were treated to both this weekend. Who'd have thought it? Further strikes from Harry Wilson and Dan James sealed off a lovely spring afternoon for Fulham fans across the land and ensured we can all look forward to our home tie against Leeds this Saturday. Today we have the Thursday Club as you've never seen it before. We've got all your regular analysis, questions and this will catch on. However, I'm delighted to be joined by Sonia Twig, who is a journalist covering Fulham for PA Sport. Sonia, thanks so much for coming on. How does it feel to be making your Fulhamish debut? Yeah, it feels great. I'm always happy to talk about Fulham. Uh, it's like, you know, my job's covering Fulham games and press conferences and everything. So it's great to talk about it with some Fulham fans. Great. And Thursday club veteran Jack Collins. How are you, mate? I'm good, mate. I'm good. I feel like I'm holding the fort down for the club these days. But um, no, it's nice. <laughs> it's good. It's all very exciting. Everyone's everyone's off. Everyone's doing different things. It's good to get some some new voices on. Um, so I'm really looking forward to this one. Yeah, a couple of supply teachers in this week. Let's hope you don't play up. Um, <laughs> right, Jack. I mean, let's, let's just get straight into the Everton game. How does it feel to be back to winning weights? I really enjoyed that supply teacher's bit. Um, yes, it's obviously really good. It's good stuff. Like... I think the thing is, we go into the weekend and talking to various people about various things. And actually, obviously, the mood around Fulham had been so negative for not necessarily in terms of general negativity. I just think in terms of how this season ends. And, and there was a lot of people being like, well, does it hugely matter? What, what, what kind of are the, the elements of the end of the season that we're looking for and we're looking to, to make safe? Um, obviously, there's the point where every single place in the Premier League is worth around two million you know, to the club. So obviously every point counts and every position in the table counts in that regard. But I think that, you know, as much as anything, it was a it was a thing about kicking on. It was about proving to players that the ambition is there to make things happen. It was about trying to work out how things are going to work without Alexander Mitrovic. And so to kind of generally, I think just to get back to winning ways and to do it in such a way and in such a cohesive second half performance, I think, was was really impressive. There were still obviously ebbs and flows to the game and there are still weaknesses in this Fulham armour. There was a very rare off day, I thought, for Joao Polina in terms of the middle of the field and, and how we dominated. But generally, I think to get back to, to winning ways, the second half performance and also to see Harry Wilson and Dan James stand up. I tweeted saying they'd basically yelled Ima Ahid and that we're still here. Uh, to, to basically the Fulham fans and, and to everyone else in the Premier League as well. But 
it, it did feel like that was a moment, especially I think for Harry Wilson, who has been struggling all season with, with getting back from that injury, who hasn't been able to to feature in the way that he would have wanted to in this season. So for him to to play the way he did, to have a hand in all three goals, uh, and to just generally you know drop that kind of performance at, in a, in a, a city he knows well, obviously, I thought was a really nice moment and one to savor. Yeah, I'm so glad you clarified what that meant there because I was going to have to just <laughs> pretend as if I knew. And yeah, it's so true. Like Every place in the table is worth roughly a Kenny Tete. So something to bear in mind. Um, Jack, do, do you feel like now as Fulham fans, we can start looking forward to the remaining games of the season? Whereas before the Everton match, it was starting to feel a bit like, oh, here we go. Yeah, obviously there was still a little bit of, of wariness, I think, about survival. And I, I think it was maybe misplaced wariness, let's be honest. I think that no one is going to get to, or three teams are not going to get to 39 points. But the last thing you want is being dragged into the relegation scrap. And I think that what we've done there is just solidified a position, not only in the top half of the table for now, but also, you know, bear in mind that Chelsea and Brentford lost this weekend. There is this element of, can we top the West London Mini League? And and that should be something that we're that we're scrapping out for. It should be something that we should be keen to finish on top of because obviously there are going to be players this summer who are wanted by a variety of clubs. And look, I think that Fulham and Brentford obviously operate in different manners in terms of how we how we recruit and how we attract players and all of that. But there are going to be the odd players who are wanted by both clubs. Now, can you prove? The other, you know, the, the club they should be going to, not just by saying, right, we'll put more money on the table, but by virtue of positions finished in the table. If that's something that Fulham can get out of, and you know, this doesn't just go for for that little mini league. This also goes for the likes of of Wolves, of, of Crystal Palace, of West Ham, even if they start to get a, a little run going. If you can finish above those teams and prove that you've got ambitions to kick on next year, it's going to help in a recruitment sense. So I, I think that's got to be kind of. I was going to say bored, but I suppose born in mind as well. <laughs> I like the idea of a South London mini league or even a sort of London mini league would be quite fun, wouldn't it? But I do entirely get what you're saying. Uh, Sonia, I mean, it was a huge improvement on the West Ham game. It looked like a different side out there. Were there any elements of Fulham's game that particularly stood out to you? I think, as you said, like it's so good to see Harry Wilson back and dominating. I think Fulham have sort of not, had him performing as well as he would want as well. And I think that's how important he was last year. And from what Marco Silva said, he started pre-season like that until the injury. So it's good to see that he's getting back some confidence because you don't want to see an injury like that sort of really damage a player's long-term career. And it can do. It's a long time out from what seems like a pretty serious injury. So it will take him time. And it's good to see that he was, you know, dominating and getting involved and I thought he was probably the one thing that would have been like the most pleasing to watch yeah no totally agree uh, let's move from one Welshman onto another the Dan James experiment now I don't think many people saw that coming that little uh, sleight of hand from Marco Silva but I mean it really paid off yeah, especially second half. I think it took a while for Dan James to kind of settle into the game. And I also think it took a while for Fulham to to kind of work out how they were going to utilise him uh, in this setup. You know, the first half felt like Dan James was a little bit lost at times. And maybe that, that experiment wasn't necessarily working in the way that we expected. And I've seen a lot of people call it a false nine. I don't think this is a false nine. Dan James played as a channel running, stretching the defence, keeping him on the back heels nine. It's a different type of nine. 
to what Alexander Mitrovic plays, but I don't think it's a false nine. It's, you know, it's not him dropping into midfield and linking up play and allowing, you know, defenders to, to kind of drift after him. It was very much trying to get them on their heels and trying to get in behind. And eventually, as Fulham started to work out those passes, and, and shouts out to Kenny Tete in particular, I think, for this, who not only obviously puts the, the ball through in terms of, of Dan James scoring that goal, but actually the way that he looked for that run and that diagonal ball in behind time and time again. We saw similar from, from Tosin, although his kind of searching diagonals tend to search the winger out instead of necessarily the centre forward. But I just thought in, in the way that it was set up and, and the way that Fulham looked to hurt Everton in this game, it very much felt, I thought, like Dan James was used as that option. And I do now wonder what this means for the Leeds game. Now, obviously, he can't play in that. But whether Fulham try to do something similar with either a Bobby Decordova Reed or even a Luke Harris, who are obviously different players to Dan James, but I think are probably more stylistically similar to him than perhaps an Alexander Mitrovic. But just generally, I think that, you know, being able to switch systems, being able to have a plan B that actually works, and Sammy tweeted something to this extent, uh, obviously on Saturday, having, a, you know, not just a plan B, but a plan B that seems to be working is is something that Fulham can utilise and also something that Fulham need to be able to utilise going into next season. Now, whether that's Dan James or not, because I don't think Fulham are going to pay £25 million for his services. If Leeds get relegated, obviously that might change. But I don't think that Fulham are going to necessarily splash out on Dan James to be a secondary plan B option. But if there is someone who can do that role and someone who can play a slightly different type and Fulham can learn how to adapt to those, that's an important thing going forward and an, an important addition to Marco Silva's attacking weaponry. So I was really impressed with, with Dan James and, uh, you know, fair play to him because he's come under a fair bit of stick this season, not least from us. Um, but generally, I think across the board, he always works hard. He always puts it in and, and he's a player that I, I genuinely quite like. So I, I, I've got to say, um, I, was, I was delighted to see him happy. Yeah, no, hats off. Absolutely, Dan. You, you mentioned there, you, you were talking about potentially bringing in Luke Harris or Bobby Decker's over up front. What about Mana Solomon? You floated this idea on a previous episode. Do you, do you, I mean, if I saw that on the team sheet on Saturday, I think, come on then, let's see, let's see. But have you have you gone off that idea? No, I haven't. I, I like it as a concept. I just, I just wary that his shooting positions and the way that he picks up space tend to be from those kind of 10 spaces or, or, or from the left wing. Um, so, so I'm not sure exactly how it would work in the same way. I don't think he would stretch the channels and, and get in behind the fullbacks in the way that Dan James did. But I'd be, I'd be, I'd be willing to have a go, be willing to have a see and see, see what we can come up with. Obviously, no minutes at all from for Manor, which I thought was interesting. Mm. Well, we didn't need to bring him on because we were so convincingly controlling the game. Sonia, you spoke to Marco Silva before the game on Saturday. Um, obviously, he was returning to Goodison Park. Did it? Did you get a sense of that? kind of sense of occasion returning to your old employer was sort of looming on him or how did he feel before the game because there was a little bit of pressure on the team at this uh, at that stage yeah I think he's, he seemed like he was looking forward to it obviously he left Everton on a bit of a sour note so I think he was quite keen to get back and show what he could do on his return I think um, he was I think he was a bit disappointed not to be on the touchline for obviously obvious reasons but I do think he was keen to go I think when things start to go wrong and, you know, that run wasn't particularly good, I think managers tend to want to, like, get the next game done. I don't think they want to sort of dwell on what's happened as much. Um, and I think I think he was keen to go up there and, and show what we could do. And also against, a, like, a very different side with sh how Sean Dyche set, has set Everton up as well. 
Yeah, totally. Uh, Jack, not to take anything at all away from our performance, because I thought that we were exceptional, but I did think, and I, I spoke about this on Sunday after we recorded um, after the game, that I thought Everton were really, really poor. Yeah. yeah they they described they describe that game as a must win. I mean, surely you've got a fear for them after putting in a shift like that. Yeah, I mean, it's not the first time that we've heard, obviously, booing at Goodison Park. Um, it's become a bit of a meme in itself. Uh, but but just generally, I, I think that that's a real worry. And, and look, Sean Dyche addressed it, I think, in his post-match comments. He said, you know, these are games that we felt like we needed to win. And, and actually, the performance on the pitch didn't reflect what we've tried to drill into the players all week and he was like that's the issue he's like we've we, you know we've obviously got that bounce when I came in it's about trying to maintain that and maintain the things without Decore they lost if, I, if I'm absolutely honest like he he is such a crucial player to the way that Sean Dyche wants to set this up and until his suspension I think Dyche had fielded exactly the same team in every single game that he had played played against so obviously he's now back from that suspension in the next game, I think you'll see a slightly different Everton. But without him, they look so porous in central midfield. And I think that generally kind of the way that we were able to, to kind of slice through that, um, the way that Harrison Reed was able to pop up in the box to score, all of it, I, I just feel like stems from the idea that without Decore, the Everton midfield looks completely and utterly shot of confidence, but also of, of ideas. And, and so... When you're kind of looking at all of those things together, he's a player that if Everton go down, I imagine Marcus Silva will be very, very interested in bringing to the cottage. And his absence, if anything, has proved why. Because when he's been missing, Everton just don't look like the same time aside at all. And and I think it's going to be very interesting to see how it kind of develops from there. Yeah, a bit of transfer window shopping, as uh, Jacob on our Telegram community coined it. You know, Everton and Leeds back to back. Nice to uh, maybe convince the cast to get their credit cards out. Who knows? Sonia, um, Sonia Harry Wilson, you mentioned um, you were glad to see him uh, return to form. Were there any other standout performances for you? Anyone catch your eye in particular? Not especially. I mean, you've, you've already spoken about Dan James and I think it was really interesting to see him in that role. I also think that that is potentially better um, moving forward than just putting Vinicius and expecting him to do the job that Mitrovic does. So I was definitely sort of intrigued to see how that worked. And yeah, as you said, it took a while to work, but it, it did in the end. And I think that's much more dynamic going forward, potentially, than just like sticking Vinicius instead of Mitrovic and expecting the same result. So I think that's interesting. I think that could also work against Leeds because they're quite a hardworking team traditionally. And I think that's carried on, even though obviously they've got new management in. Um, so I think it'll be interesting. I think, it's a different dimension from Fulham and it's quite nice to see that creativity as well because in recent weeks there hasn't been that sort of like you're thinking that there are other options and other ways forward. Mm. I have to say I thought the substitutions were very well placed and well selected on Saturday. It's, it's been, I mean, a rare criticism of Marco Silva that I feel like sometimes a few of the subs raise some eyebrows but being, bringing on TC when he did and uh, showing up the midfield for me, really worked. And yeah, it was great, great performance. And we importantly hit that elusive 40-point mark mm, yes. and equaled our away win record. Now, like much like sort of major news outlets have pre-written, ready-to-go obituaries for the likes of the Queen and Pete Doherty, 
Drew Healy <laughs> had his article, the six fastest times we reached 40 Premier League points, ready since November. He's been waiting for a long time to send that one off. Jack, can we reach 53 points? We've got eight games left, so 24 points up for grabs. Can we equal or even better our best ever points tally? 53 points for Fulham, so 13 points in eight games. I think we can get three off Leeds. I think we can get three off Leicester. I think we can probably get three off Palace and maybe Southampton. So that's 12. Um, now that leaves Aston Villa away, Man City at home, Liverpool away, and Man United away on the final day. I mean, it's now, a tough ask. I, I'm going to say that in, even in best case scenario, I think we're looking at 12 points. Um, but, you know, weirder things have happened. I think that, you know, obviously Villa are on a, on a hot streak, but they've actually been weirdly better away from home. Uh, Liverpool at Anfield seem to be a law unto themselves. So let's just ignore that one and hope for the best. And, and then there's also this kind of Manchester United final day element. Now, Man United are dropping like flies, right, at the moment. They're third in the table. They're still in the Europa League where they... Well, they are at the time of recording anyway. Obviously, they play tomorrow against Sevilla at 2-0 at the fifth one. Um, they've just lost Rafael Varane. They've lost Lissandro Martinez. Luke Shaw's out. Rashford's out at the moment. Sabitzer went down injured before the game on <laughs> the weekend. There's a lot going wrong at United, and they're still in three competitions. Obviously, they're still in the Premier League, and then... They're still in the Europa League and they've got an FA Cup semi-final against Brighton coming up. There's also the element that Alexander Mitrovic comes back for that game. or He'll be back for the Southampton game, sure, but he'll be back at Old Trafford at the scene of the crime, if you will, for that final day visit to Manchester United. I think by that point, they'll be safe in the Champions League positions and they won't be able to be caught. So I'm going to say that United might, might be a little bit all over the place by the time it comes to that final game. But so I think there's there's possibility of points there. But I also think that Fulham won't get twelve points from the four games that I've, I've I've picked us up getting twelve points from Leeds, Leicester, Southampton, and Palace. So it might end up about twelve. I think we'll be close, but I don't I don't think we'll overtake it. That's that's where I'll go for. Yeah, I mean, I think it's sort of unanimously decided amongst the fan base that maybe Europe is a little bit of a stretch this year. But so it's unlikely that there's anything that's going to be particularly riding on that Manchester United game. However, how's that for a narrative? Nice little win to cap off a season. Sonia, do you reckon we can do it or get close to 53 points? I you think, got a differing opinion to Jack? Or I think you can get close, but like those, some of those trips that you've got coming up are going to be really difficult. Um, the Liverpool one, I mean, they've been so good at home. I think that's probably a write-off. City are going to be pushing for a title and they're going to, basically win every game but I also think that the difficulty is going to be with playing teams like you know Leeds Southampton because they're really fighting for every single point at the moment whereas Fulham are safe they're not going to go down they're not really pushing for Europe so I think when it comes to maybe those final games of the season and you're playing a team like Southampton and they need a win to not be you know, to potentially get out of the relegation zone, I think it becomes a lot harder to pick up those points um, against teams like that, especially given this year we've seen just how close that fight is for to stay in the league. There are so many teams dragged into it. So I think Fulham can definitely get close, but I think it's going to be quite tight, difficult. Yeah, mm, we'll see. Anyway, it's just nice to be looking forward to them, right? I think if we'd lost on Saturday, then we'd be thinking them 
these remaining games as more of a chore, crawling over the line, whereas at least now we can seemingly go out with a bit of a bang. Jack, there continues to be a fair amount of noise about the season ticket prices online and you know in the media. Um, the club haven't said anything about it. I mean, they kind of speak volumes. Yeah, and and the fact that the tickets have gone out and there seems to be, you know, the, the main noise we're getting off the, the Fulham social media and, and the website and Twitter feed that it just all continues to roll onwards it, it, it is disheartening, I think. Obviously, we've seen no response to the FST's letter, um, the minutes released recently of, of the minutes with, without Al- Alistair McIntosh in attendance is never great to see. Um, and, you know, the, the all we're seeing is the first sales window is now open for platinum and gold Riverside seats. You know, there's nothing about any of the the, out, the backlash online. There's nothing about any things. And, and I think it's going to take something slightly more, I, I hesitate to say militant, but militant to, <laughs> to actually make this known uh, and, and to fight this fight. Now, obviously how that's going to happen is, is obviously different and, and people need to discuss and, and we need to sort of cross ranks and cross borders to, to try and make sure that everyone's on the same page on this. But yeah, you know, I, I think that there is an element of solidarity that needs to be put together here by, by Fulham fans in order to to deal with this because what we're seeing right now is the club not listening to to anything that's been done so far and, and I don't know what the next step is in order to make the club turn around and actually listen. I mean, just talking about the next step, I mean, what would it actually entail I guess walk out like what what are we talking here petitions because they seem to not really pay any attention to anything that's kind of thrown at them via email or via the social media like what what can you what can gen- genuinely be done that could force some sort of action I, I look you know I, I'm not 100% sure and I'd love to I'd love to have an answer but I don't um, and then I hate the idea of complaining without being able to suggest things, but I, I do think that there is an element of, of walk out of protest that, that needs to be put together if, if they're not going to listen. Now, obviously there is an element of timing here where we haven't had anything back on that open letter that was sent to, to the club, but if they're just going to completely ignore it, then I think that something slightly more obvious and, and, and something that's more visible potentially needs to be put on on deck in order for someone to, to stand up and, and, and start to, to for the club to actually notice that, that people are, are, are unhappy about these things. So I'm not 100% sure how this looks, but I imagine the conversations probably need, need to be had across various outlets of the, the you know, the Fulham fan base um, that, that need to come together if we are going to be able to, you know, make a stand about this. Obviously, there's been a little bit of backlash in the mainstream media. We saw Natalie Sawyer kicking off on, on TalkSport about this. Um, now it's, it's a weird one when for the football fans and, and tribalism, isn't it? Because as soon as that happened, everyone was like, well, that's a Brentford fan. Of course, they're going to kick off. And I was like, hang on, that's just really not the point, is it? Um, so, yeah, there's there's a lot going on and it's all a bit mucky and it's all very murky. And there's a lot of smoke and mirrors, I think, around this whole situation. Obviously, the club being like, oh, it's the Riverside on sale. What a great day. As opposed to being like, oh, there's an 18% season ticket increase on everybody. It, it is not by accident, is probably how I would suggest it, we'd put it. So how the next steps look from a fan perspective, I'm, I'm not sure. But I think that there needs to be some sort of uh, some sort of unity put together that, that Fulham can actually stand up against this and, and make voices heard. I think it's 
It's really unfair because especially with the cost of living crisis and, you know, a lot of people are struggling to pay for season tickets. The last thing you want is people who've been going for like 10, 15 or more years not being able to renew their season ticket because of the price. And I just I just think it, it comes at a bit of a it's, it's quite bad timing. Um, and I also think that by showcasing these sort of £3,000 season tickets, which is just utterly ridiculous to watch football, to be honest, especially when it doesn't even count as hospitality. I think it's one of the most expensive in the league, which just sort of says more than you need. And it's one the, of the most expensive in the world. So. Yeah. And that it's not about the football at that point. It's about making money. And I think that's the point that Fulham fans really need to make is like, well, it's not a business. It is our football club. It's one that we, you know, travel every week to go and watch. And fans are the life and soul of every football club. And I think it's they shouldn't be able to ignore that and they shouldn't be able to impose quite strict price hikes when a lot of other clubs are actually freezing or just going with inflation. So I think I think maybe that's the angle to go for is like why are we being treated worse than other fans if you're thinking about things like that. Yeah. We'll add that obviously there's still time for the club to respond to that open letter and hopefully we'll see a response over the coming days, if not weeks. Uh, Jack, I saw some news that was sparked by Fabrizio Romano's Here We Go podcast in which he hinted at the fact that Carvalho is going to be leaving Liverpool in the summer. He didn't specify whether that would be via loan or via full move but that's obviously sent uh, Fulham Twitter into frenzy and um, opened up that old debate I mean you can't help but feel sorry for Carvalho can you I mean he wasn't even in the squad on Monday he hasn't been in the squad for a large part of the season and I mean obviously we can't we're not him we and I guess most of the fan base could sort of understand his rationale for leaving but I mean it just really 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 has not worked out for him has it no um, and you know I was one that thought that it was a reasonable move for him to go to, to Liverpool. And I really did wonder if he was going to be utilising that kind of... There's a real false line for you in, in terms of what Fabio Carvalho would have played. Um, but it just hasn't worked out. And, you know, obviously it started quite well. You think back to that game against Newcastle early on in the season where he scored the 97th minute winner um, for Liverpool. And suddenly it all looked like everything was coming up trumps for, for Fabio. But it, it just hasn't settled since then look I think you can add to this the fact that Liverpool's season has been completely tumultuous from start to finish um they haven't been able to settle the old rhythms and the old works haven't been able to to stick around to, to what what they used to be we've seen players drop off from from where they were we've seen players who were sensational in years gone by especially in the likes of, of Virgil van Dijk and, and Trent Alexander-Arnold not stepping up to those levels again. We've seen the midfield kind of fall apart. And in all of it, I think if you were in a settled side, which had a couple of moving parts, you'd be able to change, then Fabio might have had a better shot at being able to get in here. But in in a team that's completely and utterly in chaos and, and one that's you know kind of finding its feet a little bit now, but but even still is in that kind of period where they're just trying to settle things down, just trying to get things back to normal it's not a great place for a young player trying to be breaking through um and and so I feel sorry for Fabio and I think that you know there was very few of us who could have predicted that Liverpool were going to completely and utterly fall away in the manner that they have um and and so I, I I'd love to see him back of course I think that, that, that almost every Fulham fan would um 
But I wonder, I, I don't think that's worth doing on a loan deal. Let's put it that way. If, if Fabio is going to return to the cottage, it kind of has to be permanent, I think, because there's no point us bringing him in and, and you know, a year later losing him again. So that's, that's staunching a wound rather than healing it. So I think that maybe his, his best move is actually to, to go abroad and, and play some football abroad for, for a little while if it is going to be a loan deal. If it's permanent, then Fulham should be in the conversation. Sonia, have you heard any whisperings of this at all or is this just a sort of recent hearsay? I think it's, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he leaves at all. Um, I think he's got to, at that age, you, you just have to be playing football as much as possible. Um, and I think he might potentially go on a loan. It depends if Jurgen Klopp has decided he's in his future plans or not, really. Um, and I don't know if that's sort of been spoken about in detail. I I agree that if he does come back to Fulham, it should be on a permanent deal. I'm not sure. I'm not sure Marco Silva would be too keen to just have him for a year and he does really well and then he goes back to his parent club and everyone's like, oh, that was great, thanks, type thing. Um, but, you know, thanks for that. Now, now you're off somewhere better again. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure that does a lot. I also, you know, Marco spoke about him when he left and saying that Fulham really needs to hold on to those young players that are coming through because he was very disappointed that when he arrived that he wasn't on like a long-term deal that would have made it harder for, to leave or them been worth a lot of money and I think that's definitely something Fulham need to look at to stop the next you know Harvey Elliott or Carvalho going somewhere for little money and then or in the case of Cessignon as well like a lot of these players are leaving and they're not playing and it's just quite hard to see, really. Mm, yeah, I know. I think I agree with you in that both. But if he does come back, it would need to be on a permit. Otherwise, it's just not really worth entertaining, I don't think. Sonia, there was another transfer rumour. Oh, I've hesitated to call it a transfer rumour. But Mitro was at Chelsea, right? It's happened before. Chelsea fans love getting selfies with him and saying, oh, yeah, Mitro came up to me and said he would absolutely love to play for Chelsea. Like, it's, it, tell me it's just nonsense, right? Because it is, it's nonsense, right? Tell me it's nonsense. Well, who knows with this Chelsea ownership, to be honest. <laughs> um, if they see a player they like, they seem to buy him for ridiculous amounts of money. But yeah, I, I don't think there's too much in it. Um, but, you know, they do need a forward and they will throw a lot of money at a problem. I just don't think they're going to look to Fulham for that answer. He he loves Fulham. He loves Fulham. I keep telling myself this. He loves Fulham. Also, his his sons support Chelsea for some reason. I think that's the link. Jack, have you heard all, any of this? Yeah, his sons have always supported Chelsea. It's fine. It's just like you know, we had exactly the same story going on when he went and bought a Chelsea shirt for his son in the mega store. We had the same thing a year ago. Like it's fine. It's not that big a deal. It is what it is. If Chelsea keep playing like this, I don't think there's going to be any reason why his sons will keep supporting Chelsea for much longer. So, uh, you know what? Let him go to games. You know, it, if I went to Champions League game at the bridge to cover it, no one would be like, oh, oh, you sure? I, everyone just be like, fine, it is what it is, right? Like, that, it, it's, he just wanted to come watch and play football. There are players there. There are obviously people we know. His sons support them. It's just not that big a deal. I, I really don't think that everyone blowing this out of proportion is, is struggling. It, it's it's going to be fine. If someone offers £100 million for Alexander Mitrovic, I think the Fulham ownership will have to think about it, right? Apart from that, I think we're probably okay. Oh, it would be such a horrible thing to have to go through that, wouldn't it? I don't. It's not even worth thinking about. But thank you for putting my mind at rest. That's it for part one. Don't go anywhere. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Part two of the Fullish podcast is Sammy here interjecting today's Thursday club for a chat all about finance. Don't switch off the podcast just yet. I promise you it'll be worth it. I am joined by the one and only Chris Frank, aka Cottage Analytic on Twitter. Chris, how you doing? I'm good, thanks. Hi, Sammy. Thanks for thanks for having me on. Pleasure. Always like having you on the podcast, Chris. It's uh, been longer than we would have hoped since we uh, last had you on, uh, but great to get you on. Um, if you hadn't seen Fulham's twenty one twenty two accounts came out uh, a couple of weeks ago, we were going to chat about it on last week's podcast. Then the season ticket thing blew up and we were like, okay, we might need to part this uh, for a week. Uh, we do get on to tickets uh, at the end of this chat. Um, but yeah, we thought we'd look into Everything about Fulham's accounts, Chris is going to break it down as uh, as simply as he can. And of course, Fulham's accounts matter because if you want Fulham to sign lots of players this summer, then Fulham need the money uh, in order to be able to do that. So, Chris, I think before we start off this chat, it's probably worth re-explaining the concept of FFP, financial fair play, um, because a lot of this chat is going to be about that. So put simply, what is FFP and why should I care? Sure. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. It's a really good place to start, I think. So at a high level, financial fair play or FFP are rules that simply say that over any three-year period, there's a limit to how much a club is allowed to spend above and beyond what it brings in as revenue. Right. And it does get a little bit more complicated than that because the football authorities don't want to discourage spending on some things like the infrastructure, so stadiums and things like that, or youth development or women's football. Um, So expenditure on those sorts of things doesn't count towards FFP. But on the whole, it's a simple matter of the, the money going out of the club can only exceed the money coming in by a little amount. Okay. And so what is Fulham's FFP status? Because well, we've had a checkered history when it comes to splashing the cash. 2018, we spent lots. We haven't spent that much since. So Fulham, FFP, where do we stand? Yeah, so I think you've hit the nail on the head by sort of mentioning 2018. It's worth going uh, on a sort of short journey back there, um, if you don't <laughs> mind coming with me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so if we cast our mind back to that summer 2018, um, Fulham have just beaten Villa at Wembley in front of the White Wall. Everything's looking good and the Khans are flexing their financial muscles and making a huge investment in the Fulham squad. So we've got these big transfers, big loans, and that's followed, as we remember, by this immediate and rather pathetic uh, relegation that yeah. came that came straight away and the the particular problem that created for Fulham financially is that some of that summer spending tied the club into some really big financial commitments and there's 
I guess there's really seven transfers that it's worth mentioning. There's seven big name players who came in that summer. And Fulham spent a total of about £110 million on these players. And this is, of course, the origin of the phrase doing a Fulham yeah. is coming into the Premier League, spending a load of money and getting relegated. But these, these seven players, it's Mitrovic, who obviously has turned out to be quite a good transfer. And then you've got Anguissa, you've got Seri, Lamarchon, Mawson, Brian. And of course, we can't forget Fabri as well as the the seventh member Flipping out. of of that uh, of that uh, <laughs> important group um so i've got to say something a, a little bit on a sort of slightly technical accounting matter but this will make sense uh, yeah. later on because the way football accounting works with transfer fees is when you spend a transfer fee you don't recognize it all at once in one hit on the accounts but instead what you do is you spread the transfer fee over the life of a player's contract so if i give you a Quick example, if Fulham were to buy a player for £10 million and sign them to a four-year contract, then what Fulham would do is recognise a quarter of that £10 million or £2.5 billion every year for each of the four years of the contract. And that's known as amortising the transfer fee. And that's the last technical thing we really need to talk about um, today. You'll You'll be pleased to hear. But what Fulham did is they spent £110 million on these seven guys, all different contract lengths but generally about four years. And what that's meant is that for every season since then, Fulham have have recognised an expense of about £27 million every season as they've amortised that that spending. And it's not the end of it either, because those seven players obviously were all on very good wages. And my research into this suggests that they were probably paid collectively about £17 million as as a group every season. So you add those two numbers together, the £17 million in wages, the £27 million of transfer fee amortisation. And what's really happening is Fulham are committing themselves to £45 million of spending every season for four seasons in a row, which is fine if if they turn you into a successful or mid-table Premier League club. But if you get relegated straight away, as we did, and become a championship club, then you really can't stomach that kind of financial commitment. And just to sort of give an example of that point, I was looking up, um, I l- looked up to see how much money sort of a typical championship club makes and the sort of the most bog standard championship club I could think of is obviously QPR, who are still just about uh, <laughs> yeah, at the time be. of recording a championship side. Yeah, I um, and they generate about £20 million a year in income. So if you think about a club like that trying to operate with this £45 mm. million pound spending commitment, it's a big problem. Yeah. And of course, Fulham have parachute payments as well as a relegated team. But basically, what I'm saying is those seven million, those seven players pretty much consume that entire uh, parachute payment, which is obviously a big problem uh, at that stage. Okay. So the year is 2022. I imagine what we're getting to is that the the scars of 2018 are starting to to wear off. So these latest accounts came out. They're for last season. What are the takeaways then from this? Yeah, so I think I think the key point, I suppose, that coming into that season, I thought we were in quite a bit of trouble because we didn't have like a big asset like Ryan Sessegnon to sell. And I was predicting at the start of last season, we'd probably have to sell Anguissa, uh, Carvalho, and probably Tosin and or Mitro as well to make the numbers work. But we haven't done all that. We've only sold Anguissa and Carvalho. So there was a big worry, I think, that there might be a problem with FFP. And I was very keen to sort of see when the, the latest accounts came out, what the position would be. And I suppose sort of cutting to the without sort of you know, cutting to the chase here, I think we're probably just about okay 
on FFP. Um, yeah. And just to sort of throw out a few a few numbers, basically the rules would say that in the FFP assessment period up to the end of last season, Fulham would be allowed to lose £72 million. But that's after all those adjustments I mentioned about women's football and youth academy spending and that sort of thing. Yeah. So at £72 million they're allowed to lose. What they actually lost, if you add up all the numbers in the accounts, is £168 million. So more than double what they're allowed. But that's before you make all these adjustments. So the big question in the I guess where the sort of suspense comes from in this story is can you find £96 million worth of adjustments to get the actual loss Fulham made under that FFP limit? And you take away things like the money Fulham lost when they demolished the Riverside stands and the money they spent on the academy and women's football, all that sort of thing, promotion bonuses as well. Fulham are constantly paying promotion bonuses because they're getting promoted every other year. That's the problem of being a yo-yo club. Yeah. Um, and I still kind of get to the position where Fulham are probably just short of FFP when you work out all those numbers. But there's one more adjustment, which is quite an interesting one in the accounts, and it's quite an unusual one. And it talks about uh, what the club has done. is basically said that because of the pandemic, that reduced the transfer value of a lot of the club's players. And they've taken this accounting write-off or impairment of about £20 million for the value of the squad. And what that basically means is they've taken some of that £110 million 2018 expenditure that we talked about before. And they've converted some of that from a sort of amortizing business expense into a COVID expense, which is you, which you can deduct from your FFP calculation. So they've basically taken this, this, this expenditure, which would have gone through, you know, as a, as an outgoing for FFP. And they basically said it doesn't count because of the pandemic. And that, I think, is the thing that makes the difference between Fulham having to have sold a Mitro or a Tossin last season and having not actually done that and kept the squad together and probably been okay for FFP. But then there's the question of, okay, is that a reasonable adjustment for Fulham to make? They're certainly not the only team that's tried yeah. that on, um, but it, not to alarm you, but one of the other club that's, clubs that's tried it is Everton and they're currently under investigation for an FFP breach. But I think they pushed the concept much further than Fulham did. They put through some much bigger numbers in their COVID uh, player write-off exercise. So I think what I'm saying is I think Fulham are okay for FFP at the end of last season. I'm pretty sure we they probably cleared that that adjustment in advance with the league. But if we were to suddenly get an, an announcement in the next few weeks that actually someone is investigating Fulham, it's probably that issue and that COVID adjustment that they made that's um, at the core of it. God, this is such a, a tightrope that uh, that Fulham are that are walking at the moment. Mm. Um, you, you mentioned a hundred and sixty odd million loss. Um, I, I presume I'm right in saying that Shahid is underwriting all of this loss. This is just uh, converting shares, doing whatever rich businessmen do, converting loans in order to mean that Fulham have that money. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, that's kind of the story of Fulham since about 1997 when Al-Fayyad first took over the club. They've basically been loss-making pretty much every year um, since then. I think the total accumulated losses are in the region of £600 million over that time period. £200 million of that comes under the Al-Fayyad era and the rest to the, you know, the, the lion's share to the, to the Khans. Um, so yeah, it's, you know, Fulham definitely been living above their means for most of that that time and taking some pretty um, heavy losses, which have been under underwritten by the owners. I have a question on this. 
obviously they've lost this money, but the value of the asset of Fulham gets ever bigger. Does that negate the fact that they're losing all this money? The fact that Fulham has grown in value so much and, and continues to rise in value as the Khans have owned it. And also when Mohamed Al-Fayed owned it, Fulham were worth a lot more when he sold it than from when he bought it. Yeah, I think that's exactly the game that they are playing. I think in Al-Fayed's case, he probably didn't get a very good deal over the over the whole time of his ownership. I think he sold the club for about the money he put into it. But given that you know he sold, it took him 20 years to break even or however long it was, 15 years. That's probably not a good deal from his point of view. But I think that's definitely the game that the, the Khans will be playing. And I think if we look to the States and their operation with the Jacksonville Jaguars, the NFL team, I think that tells a similar story where basically they might be loss making on, on an ongoing basis, but the value of the franchise itself has massively grown as NFL you know, TV audiences grow and that sort of thing. And you know, the way the Premier League has grown in the time that the Khans have owned Fulham, you can only assume that the value of a you know, a consistently mid-table Premier League team is massively higher now than than when the Khans took over. Yeah, because I always think that's something that there's a, has to be something in it for the owners and not just the idea of it's fun to own a football club. Like there has to be something in it. And I think we always look at the, the losses per season, but sometimes forget that the value of the asset is growing all the time, but it's hard to put a value on the price for the asset because the, it's only worth what someone's going to pay for it unless I'm mistaken. Exactly. Yeah, exactly right. And I think that links into some of the discussions that have been going on as well about the, you know, the ticket pricing and that sort mm. of thing and the new stand, because, you know, arguably, if you're trying to sell Fulham as a club, and I'm not suggesting the Khans are about to, to sell, but if you can advertise them as a, you know, a club in trendy West London with the highest season ticket prices anywhere in the world, that arguably puts up the, the sale price to a, to a potential buyer. Um, but let's come back to the accounts because I read your blog, your extensive blogs on this, and, and you must read Chris's work. This is this is very much a, a, a light skim that we're doing on the podcast today. The the, the detail is in uh, Chris's blog got at Cottage Analytic on Twitter for all the links, and we'll put a link in the description of this podcast as well. But what I found particularly fascinating was a hypothesis that you've done that Fulham could be in profit for this season, 22-23. Now, we won't know that until next April when those accounts are out, but you're estimating a potential £30 million profit. And as you mentioned before, that's a pretty big deal for not just the Carlins, but Fulham in general to be a profit-making club. How's that happened? Yeah, it, it's a totally like a, a landmark event. It's probably only the third profits Fulham have made since Al Fayed took over. They're probably the first under the Khans. So it's certainly a you know a big deal, as as you say. And I think it's really interesting how this has come about because the, the first part of the story is that that 2018 spending commitment, the 45 million pounds a year we talked about, that's over now. That, that's pretty much done. So that that's gone. But in addition to kind of finishing that spending, at the end of the championship winning te- you know, season last year, Fulham were actually really good about kind of clearing out the squad. They obviously identified a core of the team that was going to be important in the Premier League this year. And they basically got everyone else off the book. So, you know, Gisa and Seri, they all, they all went. 
the likes of Hector and uh, Caballero, Congolo, Noca, all those guys, they're either gone on loan or free, free transfer or, or something. They've all gone. So the club's dramatically cut its, its wage bill and its running running costs before the start of you know this Premier League season. And then they brought in about 13 new players who really designed to supplement rather than replace the players that were retained. Mm. And I think what you're left with is that the first for the first time in ages, Fulham have a squad that sort of, you know, looks lean. They've got there's no not really many superfluous players there. It's full of highly motivated players being paid sensible amounts for the sort of club that Fulham are. And, you know, most importantly, they're performing really well. So the analysis, the analysis I did that you know suggests that if Fulham finish around tenth, they should get about 160 million pounds in income this year, and with wages and transfer transfer fee amortisation, this this squad probably costs about 130 million pounds a year to run. So that does mean a 30 million pounds profit, and that has huge implications for FFP going forward. You know, for the first time, we're coming to a transfer window where I don't think Fulham are going to be massively constrained on FFP. And that's even before we consider that we might sell some players. um, Because for the first time in a very long time, we actually have players that other teams want to buy. And that's, you know, it's been a long time since that's, you know, that's been the case on on a consistent basis across the squad. And I assume it is that difference of finishing kind of 10th down to if let's say we finish 17th, even though we would have stayed up and that would be good. Um, that difference in position and in maybe our cup run as well, has that made a bit of an impact? Yeah, the cup run definitely helps having a, a sold out uh, Old Trafford doesn't, doesn't like to think back to that day too much, but um, that was probably financially quite a helpful uh, fixture mm. to have. But also the Premier League pays uh, what they call merit payments. So the higher you finish in the league, the more money you get. So finishing 10th you know, unlocks 10 to 15 million pounds more than if you just escaped relegation. So that's, you know, that's a big deal to, to a club like, like Fulham. So it's, um, yeah, a very successful season, both on and off the pitch, essentially, if, you know, if these predictions are correct. Yeah, of course. Well, look, there's um, potential for it to change between now and then. Do you think that means then that this summer Fulham will spend some serious money. I mean, you'd imagine from Fulham's position in the league where we are that doubling down on what we've already got seems sensible, bringing some real quality. But I mean, that's hugely exciting if that does mean that Fulham can get the old checkbook out again. Um, just as long as we don't do a 2018 again, I guess would be the uh, would be the yeah. word of advice. Yeah, that, I mean, that's the ultimate caveat here. They've got to be careful in how they do it. And I think what they will probably try and do is, is try and gradually increase the the sort of running costs and quality of the squad. So I mentioned earlier that the current squad or the, the current club probably costs about 130 million years million pounds a year to run Fulham can probably sustain within FFP a a club that costs sort of 170 to 180 million pounds a year to run so they can pay some transfer fees they can increase the wage bill a bit but I think they'd probably choose to do it steadily and I imagine that on top of the squad we've got now we could replace any levers and then add five or six players of the sort of quality we've got in the first team now maybe one or two sort of marquee signings as well and that wouldn't break the bank too much in in my estimation so i think you know i, I don't think you go out and try and sign mbappe or something like that it doesn't make sense to to do that but just steadily build on what we've got replace the players that have that have left and turn perhaps the weak points into the squad in the squad into strengths and gradually upgrade that way 
Yeah. Who needs Mbappé when you've got William on the left anyway? Exactly. Um, the final point I wanted to bring on here, Chris, is that amongst all the excitement of Fulham doing well um, financially, it does seem that Fulham's desire to be at least sustainable, if not profitable, um, is coming at quite the cost off the pitch and we've seen the season ticket prices and the match day prices as well. And there's been so much debate over the necessity of Fulham charging the prices that they are. I remember asking this question to Kieran Maguire when we had him on Fulhamish in the pandemic and he was quite bullish that no, clubs need to charge this amount of money. I think he's slightly changed his tune on that, actually, since I asked him um, a few years ago. I've seen him kind of denounce some of the recent prices of various club on his Price of Football podcast. But yeah, I would be interested in finding, because as much as morally I don't agree with the ticket prices, it would also be interesting to know from a financial point of view whether what they're doing is essential. Like how much of Fulham's income are match day sales, ticket sales, et cetera, et cetera, is what they're doing actually sensible from a financial point of view? Yeah, I think it's always surprising when you look at the accounts, how little of a club's revenue comes from gate receipts. So if we look at the last year of Fulham accounts where there was a normal you know, non-COVID impacted Premier League season, that was probably the 18-19 season where we've got accounts for. And Fulham had about £140 million in revenue of which only 10 came from the gate receipts. So it's 10 from gate receipts and 130 from TV, corporate and sponsorship. So that's less than 10% of the revenue of the club coming from your total gate receipts. So if you're pushing up prices, you know, 20% across the stadium, and I agree with something that you've said, which is that the the £3,000 season ticket is a bit of a distraction. In fact, I think I'm kind of in, fa- in favour of charging a few corporates tons of money to come and sit in the Riverside stand. I'm fine with that if it pays for some players. But what <laughs> concerns me is the, you know, the 20% price rise across the board, the individual ticket price increases as well. And I would estimate that all those changes probably add two or three million pounds to the club's overall revenue. So taking it from something like 160 million pounds to 163. Okay, so we're talking about a sort of one and a half percent increase in the club's revenue. So it doesn't seem to me that that kind of benefit is worth what's being done to the club's goodwill, to the fan base, to the families that go to to Fulham. And, And here I'm most concerned about myself, to be honest, because I've yeah, I go with my dad and my and my kids, and this is going to have a few, mm. huge impact on on me. So, it seems like a strange decision to me to put the prices up this much, given the the impact on goodwill versus the fairly limited increase in revenue. But if I was to flip this and you know play devil's advocate here, if this is going to add two or three million pounds a year to the club, that's roughly what we pay we pay uh, Jao Polinia in wages. So. Mm. Does that mean we can afford an extra Polina level player in the first eleven? And if that's the choice, that sort of kind of sounds a bit more attractive as a well, you pay this extra money, but now there's an you know an extra superstar out there on the on the pitch. I'm, I think I'm stretching that argument a bit further than it really justifies, but I suspect that's the sort of thing the club would would point to. I mean, maybe the better way of doing this would be to charge the same prices they are now. But you know, like on an airline, you get charged taxes for fuel and surcharges and stuff. Maybe if it was the £10, the £20 extra would be your Polinia tax. Maybe 
just just putting it out here maybe that would be more palatable maybe people would understand it a bit more i'm talk, talking nonsense ignore me um chris look that is the most amazing summary um the fact that we've done nearly 25 minutes and it's just a summary i think uh, shows um just how much detail there is uh, to get into here so make sure you check out the link in the description of this podcast uh for chris's blog all about uh this subject and fulham's finances and what it potentially means going forward as well including his hypothesis and what it could mean for next year. Uh, I thoroughly, thoroughly recommend reading it. Chris, lovely to have you on. Fantastic, fantastic work. Honestly, uh, that was super um, interesting. And I'm sure everyone that didn't skip forward uh, on this podcast because um, they heard it was about finances, uh, thoroughly appreciated it. So thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Welcome back to the Fulhamish Podcast. I'm joined by Sonia Twig and Jack Collins. First of all, I just want to say thank you to every listener who supports us on Leveller. You effectively keep the podcast going. We pay all of our contributors. Fulhamish isn't this big cash spinning operation. Our main goal is just to keep afloat and by supporting us, it really does help and it ensures that we can carry on putting out all the content that we do. So if you enjoy Fulhamish and it mean a hell of a lot if you would consider supporting us on Leveller. If you can't, no worries at all. Everything remains free. You know, that's the beauty of this model. If you want to, you can support us. If not, you still get everything. You know, we're totally against putting anything behind a paywall. It's uh, something that's very important to us. So yeah, uh, big thank you. And if you would consider backing us then yeah it means a lot there's a link in the description to this podcast right on to Leeds United of the last nine meetings between these two great footballing sides there's been only one draw with an even split of four wins each now Leeds are going through a bit of a tough time at the moment Jack I mean 11 goals conceded in the last two home appearances obviously got thrashed 6-1 at home uh, by Liverpool on Monday, just eight days after their 5-1 defeat to Crystal Palace, who are also, you know, struggling in, the, in a similar position to them. Um, yeah, I mean, not looking too good. Surely we can notch a few goals against this side, right? You'd think so, wouldn't you? <laughs> uh, but that's not the way that this club works. Um, <laughs> yes, uh, Leeds' last four games, I believe, are 4-1 loss. To Arsenal, then they beat Forest. They squeaked by Forest, then got battered by Palace, five-one. Then got battered by Liverpool, six-one. So effectively, a seven-one should be on the cards, um, but but I don't think it's going to pan out quite like that. Right, look, Leeds are scrapping for their lives now, and 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 ultimately, I think we saw an Everton side who didn't look up for that battle at the weekend. Leeds were beaten, well beaten by Liverpool, but the Palace game didn't feel like a 5-1 you know it, it was it, the Leeds were all over them for the first half they conceded late in in stoppage time in the first half and then in the second half Palace just ran riot on the counter I don't think that Fulham are going to be able to do that and that same thing to Leeds yesterday I think Liverpool had a touch of okay we are we remain a very good side you know there remains a touch of class within this I think that this Leeds side that we'll see come to the cottage is now one which is well aware of the the depth of its issues. Um, They're obviously two points clear of the relegation zone. Forest there on 27, Leeds on 29, Everton between them also on 27. Um, But Leeds' running is is pretty nasty 
if, if we're being quite honest. Um, you know, that that last bit where they have City, Newcastle and Tottenham in their last four games is is not ideal, I think, if you're trying to scrap your way out of this. So they will see this period here, the Fulham game, the Leicester game they have at home next, and then the Bournemouth game away as their best chance of salvation. Uh, and I think that, you know, when when you look at it like that, it's going to be a side that are coming here to, to fight. And, and the, the thing about this is obviously that Fulham's change to play with Dan James caused real issues for Everton and, and was actually very impressive in the way that Fulham applied themselves on the counter and in transition. And and actually, when you kind of look at this game, I don't think it's going to be like that. Fulham will have the ball. Fulham will have possession. It's going to be about unlocking leads from deep. And whether that does involve Carlos Vinicius or whether it involves someone else trying to get in behind them, I don't know yet because I think that leads will tuck in and, and try and basically frustrate Fulham. And I actually think Vinicius might be the best shout for this game. Now, I've said this before, but... I think that in games like this, when you're trying to kind of find your way through a low block, when you're trying to find your way through a team that that are set up to spoil, and I'd be surprised if they don't set up to spoil, then you're going to need someone who's going to just be able to keep the ball moving. And as long as Fulham keep the ball on the deck, as long as Harry Wilson, I think, and and potentially Willian are used again on the wings in order to give Fulham that long distance ammunition, then I think there's something for Fulham in this game. But I don't think it's going to be as easy as perhaps Leeds' latest results make it look. Mm. I mean, 16 goals in their four Premier League games in April. It's eight more than any other side. And one more than they conceded across January, February and March combined. I mean, that is one hell of a leaky defence. Sonia, I think it's got all the makings of a potentially quite an entertaining game. Fulham coming off a good performance, home tie, Leeds, terrible defence, probably going to be a little bit shaky, yet it's a must-win for them. Are we expecting some fireworks on Saturday, maybe? I definitely think there's going to be some goals. I don't think Leeds' defence is good enough, but they they have, you know, you mentioned all those defeats, but they did score in all of them. Which So I definitely think, you know, they're capable of scoring. I think it could be a very entertaining game. I quite like watching Leeds matches. I do think they, they're always quite, something usually happens. Um, from a journalism perspective that makes it quite interesting to watch um, and I think it'll be good I think it's you know if we've got that win the crowd's going to be a lot more up for it than they were the last one when it was sort of a bit flat and everyone was a bit down given you know how things were going so I think I think it'll be a really good game hopefully the sun's out early kickoff good day yeah happy days what do you think is going wrong for them at the moment because I watched the Liverpool game and the thing that really struck me defensively was their inability to pick up runners which kind of bodes fairly well well for us in the way that we play but are there any other elements to their defense that you think are potential sort of frailties that we could look to exploit Sonia? I think they didn't pick up runners very well against Liverpool but a lot of people don't against Liverpool I just don't think they stopped the balls coming through like it's one thing to make those runs but they weren't stopping those passes being played Liverpool were just carving through their midfield like it wasn't there I mean it's easy to say when they've won six one, but I think it was just they just couldn't get control of the game of the ball or anything, you know. Enough they didn't have it enough to mount a counter attack. It was just all Liverpool, and once you know a couple of goals went in, they just sort of didn't have that fight to get back into the game as much. Um, but I think a lot of that is confidence, you know, especially when you're at that end of the table, a couple of bad results, and you start looking down rather than up, and that's when things can take a turn. Um, especially, you know, this this weekend, they're two points ahead. But if one of those other teams gets a win and they don't, then they're right back, you know, in the drop zone. 
So I think I think Fulham can definitely look to exploit that. Fulham's midfield has been really good this year. Um, and I, I expect Paulinho will get stuck in and want to make up for, as you've mentioned, a slightly below par performance against Everton. Mm, yeah, I think that's spot on. And I wonder if this is a game for Sasha Lukic. Um, obviously, Harrison Reed was excellent. Uh, the weekend, Polina, a little bit of an off game. Um, I wonder if there's just a little bit of rotation here as we get towards the end of the season, just to allow Lukic's abilities to shine through a little bit more. He's he's a player, and I think spot on, Sonia, in terms of of, of being able to stop those uh, of not Leeds not being able to stop those searching balls cutting through the midfield. Uh, and actually, that's what Lukic was excellent at Torino. Those balls where he could pick the ball up, kind of on the on the halfway line, turn, drive into those spaces, and release players. And I think that if Leeds do tuck in and they do try to play this defensively, then Lukic's ability from outside the area and being able to create things from in those spaces might well be something that the Marco Silva looks to. So, yeah, I'd be very intrigued to see if that's something that, that that's thrown into the, the Fulham mixer this weekend. Which battles do you think are going to be key, Jack? Um, I, I think that this this battle on the right, um, and look, Kenny Tete is crucial to pretty much everything that Fulham do, but I, I do think he's got his work cut out for him in Luis Sinistera. I loved him at Feyenoord, and I got to see him actually live in the flesh in the, in the Europa Conference League final against Roma in, in Tirana, which was which was incredibly enlightening, I think, into what he can do. And, and there's, there's a lot of hype around players like this because he's an explosive dribbler, was doing really, really well in the Eredivisie, someone who can take on a defender, and suddenly if you get a good European run as, as far or did last year the world starts talking now he's part of a kind of force that also included Reese Nelson on that right hand side who's someone that hasn't really got going I think this season Arsenal he's had his moments obviously but not really been a kind of crucial part of it but Sinistera had kind of Roma's number down that left and I think that generally since he's come in obviously he he suffered that dreadful injury early on um, in in this season, but but since he's come back, he's he's been a real live way. He can make things happen. He can cut onto that right foot and 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 strike from from distance. So that actually, what Tete does, both defensively and going forward, if he can pin Sinistera in his own half and stop him being able to actually activate, then that's going to be very interesting. We've seen Kenny Tete shut down brilliant one on one dribblers before. We, he's an excellent one on one defender. Um, so so actually, I think that that battle down that right is going to be crucial to how the game tilts. And if it tilts correctly and Tete wins that battle, it should open up for Anthony Robinson to be able to, you know, to get down that other side and 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 be able to, to come at it and, and and kind of get going at Rasmus Christensen, who I still think is a little bit shaky defensively, um, and at Jack Harrison, who who is someone who will look to obviously get going down down his own side and, and get forward. But I do often think leaves his fullback a little bit exposed. So if Kenny Tete can win that battle against Sinistera, I think it's huge for for the way that this one pans out. I mean, there is talent in that lead squad, isn't there? And I mean, Marcus Silva's back on the touchline this weekend. Obviously a lovely little boost for the club. But I mean, Sonia could be a little bit of a scouting mission if Leeds were to go down. There's a few names in that um, squad that I'm welcome at Fulham. Well, I think every club's looking at those ones who go down. I don't imagine, um, you know, Ward Prowse at Southampton if they go down, he definitely won't stay at Southampton. There's a few others that I'm sure people have got their eye on just going, oh, well, if they go, then they'll be cheap and we can get pick them up. So I think it's definitely that. But yeah, I agree. I think there's, there is a lot of talent in that lead side and there are many clubs that are going to be fighting for some of those players if they do go down. And actually, maybe even if they don't, if players have joined Leeds thinking they were going to be 
you know, fighting for the top half of the Premier League and they're not there, some of those players might not want to be involved in a second relegation battle if that's what they feel that they're facing. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Got some questions for you here. Not so much a question, more just the kind of point here, but I did quite enjoy it by Sam Purcell. He said, Hi, Fulhamish. Has anyone noticed that this season we have an almost perfect yin-yang for people who enjoy their numbers and patterns? 12 wins, 6 draws, 12 defeats, plus 1 goal difference. Almost perfect. If Everton had got one back on Saturday, then we'd just be prime. You know, we'd be at Nirvana right now, wouldn't we? The Buddha... And Changzu would approve. Cheers, here's to another 500 episodes. I mean, it's quite a nice symmetry there, Jack. Yeah, I like it. I actually did notice this midweek um, and I was laughing at it with a friend and I was just kind of like, that's a very, very strange and unfathomable thing that sometimes happens. I think I remember United finishing a season with something similar at one point. Um, so yeah, there, there were... There are obviously moments, so I would prefer it to be tilted more in the, in the old wins category. But you know what? 12 wins and six of these. I think you actually, what's interesting is that we have more wins than pretty much anyone around us. Brentford, who are a point clear, have two less wins than us. Chelsea, who are three points behind, have two less wins than us. Actually, you know, Brentford have lost less. Um, but actually, it's quite interesting just seeing how teams build their way to those kind of points totals. And that kind of area of the league, that ninth, 10th to 12th kind of area, is quite interesting in how the balance is look and how the goal different balances strike out as well so I think it's plenty to be pleased about but uh, yeah just a, a nice quirk if anything else yeah lovely little bit of symmetry there we'll see how uh, how long that continues we've got another question here from Jeff Lamb now I found this really interesting especially with Marco returning to the touchline this weekend hey Fulhamish podcast a family of Fulham supporters here and we love listening to the pod I lived in Fulham around the corner in 2006 and became a season ticket holder during the raw years, but have moved back to Melbourne in 2010 and now have two Fulham supporting boys. My question is this, after seeing Marco Silva in the stands after his suspension, why don't all managers stay up in the stands? Now, I know this sounds like a strange question, but in Australian rules football, every manager sits in the stands. I believe it's similar with rugby as well. They have dedicated boxes for the coaching staff and stats people in the stands with all telephones down to the bench so they can relay commands. He attached a couple of pictures. I mean, we've all seen it's quite common in American sports as well. In the AFL, there may be 10 people in the coach's box. Every one of them has a computer in front of them. They get a much better view of the pitch and full access to all of the stats and details about what is going on. Why has this not caught on? Thanks, Jeff Lamb and family from Melbourne, Australia. Now, Sonia, is it the case that football is just a little bit stuck in his ways and backwards? Because all of those points that he says there make total sense, you know, and we're progressing into an ever more data-driven game. And I'm seeing facets of the American sports model coming into the British game. Is this something that you could foresee us sort of moving to in the future? I mean, I've, I've heard it on the radio, actually, from managers saying that they have a better view in the stands. So I think that's part of it. <laughs> Sounds a little bit like bitter, like, oh, I get a bit of you in the stands anyway. Well, I think there's part of that. But I think also it's quite hard to, you can't see the tactical layouts of teams and if they change something up, if you're just stood on the touchline, you do need a slight aerial view sometimes to get an overlook. But I, I think it potentially depends on the manager because some of them like to bark instructions while some like to sit in their dugout. So I think for the ones who prefer to sit in their dugout more uh, 
a seat in the stands would be more beneficial. But for those who feel like you get really involved in the game and want to be there yelling at orders at whoever it is who's near them and dictating that, I think that's a lot harder from the stands. And but AF like American football is all sort of it's much more set plays than football. So they can they know exactly what they're doing. They've got all this like book that they've all memorized and they can do these set plays, whereas football is so much more fluid. So sometimes you might need to make like shout orders at someone and you wouldn't be able to do that. And I think some managers quite enjoy that. Yeah, there's there's far more momentum swings, I think, in in football and in our football that, that there is in the NFL. Um and, and the fact that the game can can kind of tip from end to end is something that's kind of unfathomable or at least very, very it doesn't happen very often um, in, in American football. I think it's really interesting because actually a lot of people will have people doing this. And, you know, we've heard about Brentford's model with this, and I hate to continue referencing them, but I'm going to keep going. That, that Thomas Frank has a data man who sits up top in the stands. There is a data and a tactics anal- analyst who sit up top and are able to, to kind of look at the game from that bird's eye view, the football manager view, if you will, where, where they're kind of looking down at the, the pitch and seeing how spaces are opening up. The other one of those has a laptop and all of those are relayed to Thomas Frank within the dugout in order so that he can make changes and adapt based on that. And I think that that's the kind of collaboration that you're probably looking for. You don't necessarily need a manager up top reading the game like that. What you need is a manager to be able to show his players or speak to his players and have that kind of human element to be able to deal and switch around the the areas that are causing problems. He doesn't need to be the one necessarily seeing them. If that information can be relayed to a manager, then he's able to to have that human conversation that's able to switch things around and, and, and deal with the problems. So I think it's interesting, um, but I, I can't see it changing just yet because there is that element, you know, as Sonia rightly points out, of the fact that managers have that connection directly you know face to face with their players also you know in nfl people have things in their helmets right <laughs> there are there are there are actual speakers and, and conversations going on live in games and that's something that wouldn't make sense within the spec of a football game but i, I think the manager's job is to try and relay those insights and, and deal with the problems and sort them out like someone moving the chess pieces as opposed to someone looking at the board yeah. Also, it's Marco is so ingrained in his managerial style to be up there and close and personal on the touchline and, you know, give his players that energy. So I don't know whether it would particularly suit him, but interesting discussion point nonetheless. Right. Should we move on to This Will Catch On to top off the podcast? Sonia, are you familiar with This Will Catch On? <laughs> oh, well, strap in. So basically, fans send in their chance that they want to catch on across the terraces and I'll be the DJ and I'll be playing it for, for you two. And you've got to tell, you've got to give it just a, a bit of sort of X factor, Louis Walsh style feedback. Um, and then we'll just take it. From, exactly. We'll take it from there. Um, but yeah, no, I'm, 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 I th- you'll see why, but I'm quite, um, I'm all of a sudden feeling quite bashful that uh, somebody who's not a Thursday club regular is sat keeping a, Peter Utzler's seat warm because uh, I decided to put an entry in myself this week and uh, and now and now I'm rather regretting it so we'll see how that goes 
But this first one is for from Charlie Clark. Um, and I don't have the previous email because I believe he sent it and then uh, forgot to add an attachment and then followed up saying, here's the attachment. And yet um, I never actually saw the original email, but I thought I'd give it a spin. So this is uh, just a generic Fulham chant from Charlie Clark for Southwest Six. Let us know what you think. We've conquered all West London. <laughs> We're never going to stop. From Brentford down to Chelsea, we beat the fucking law. Metro and Polina, and Willie and Slick Tricks prove there's only one team in SW6. Fulham, Fulham, Fulham. Oh no, I don't know that. Fulham, Fulham, Fulham. <laughs> Fulham, Fulham, Fulham. Fulham, Fulham, Fulham. It was going really well. <laughs> it was all going really nicely. I really enjoyed myself until it wasn't an LA, LA, LA. Um, but yeah. You're, you're, you're a man who loves football on the continent. Do you think it needs to remain LA, LA, LA? I think it does, yeah. Um, originally taken from an Italian pop song, that chant, from the 1980s. Uh, and Port- Napoli took it and then Porto took it and that's where it ended up with Liverpool. Um, yeah, I, I like that song. I, I tried to do one myself years back, but it never really caught on. I think maybe the LA, LA, LA has become a little bit too homogenous these days. But I did actually really like the verse. So shout out to Charlie on that. Nice. Um, Sonia, any thoughts? Yeah, I thought I couldn't quite work out. It sort of started quite well, but I think the best football chants and the ones that catch on are the ones that are quite short. And I just felt like it, it sort of... It was about Fulham, then it was dropping in a load of players' names, and then, yeah, I'd agree with that LA, LA, LA needs to stay as it is. Okay. Um, now, there's the one that I've, I've, uh, I've written. I-, <laughs> I can't wait to absolutely shred yours, by the way. Let's get it. Get it on. Just spin it. Don't, I don't want any you- introduction. I don't just spin it. <laughs> If you if you prefer short ones, Sonia, then I'm I'm afraid you'll be bitterly disappointed. <laughs> so um I did this yesterday, as you can probably tell. I have far, I've got far too much time on my hands, but this is this is for William. I'm not just gonna say it anymore, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna play it. I hope this has a backing track. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> he's got style and he's got grace. <laughs> And he'll back you a fucking brace. It's Willie, our superstar Brazilian. <laughs> he's multi Let's do it. And he's been cutting inside since the day that he was born. He won't slow down. No sign of getting old now. Well done, Georgie. Runs rings around defenders To his foot the ball is glued He was quite shit at Arsenal But for us he's fucking rude He won't slow down No signs of getting old now Oh no He's got style and he's got grace And he'll back you a fucking brace Though he's lacking a bit of pace, it's William. <laughs> well they done, said George. that he was finished, but shows no signs of fatigue. His link-up play with Mitro has helped us climb the league. 
He has a great big afro and he hits top bins for fun. We instantly forgave him for playing for the scum. He's got style and he's got <laughs> It's one for the album, George. I think mean, that's what we can, we can say at this point. He'll find me drawing open space. <laughs> yeah, no, it's well done, yeah. Lots of references, <sighs> lots of good stuff. I enjoyed it a lot. I mean, it's never catching on. Mostly because <laughs> no one can hit those notes. Um, but but uh, as long as going, mate, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. Fantastic. It's not your best. It's not cool for has, but it's, it's not bad at all. I like it a lot. Well done. Good stuff. Oh. I will say that um, I wrote it and then didn't quite realise how high those notes were until oh, I started yeah, recording really it, so hard. I can apologise for straining. <laughs> All right, that's enough for today, I think. <laughs> on the, I liked how on... you had a whole chorus and then different verses. <laughs> yeah, There's a, a lot much. of effort put in. Yeah, great commitment. Yeah. I, got a, um, I got a text from my upstairs neighbour yesterday when I was recording this at 525 which read, hi George, hope you're having a good day. Sorry to bother you, but I can hear rather a lot of noise coming from your flat. May I politely ask that you keep it down for the next hour or so? Wouldn't normally ask, but I'm currently interviewing candidates on Zoom. Um, I didn't see that until about 45 minutes later um, after I'd finished and tried and failed to hit many high notes. But um, yeah, I can only apologise if you're listening upstairs. Anyway, thank you so much uh, for your time today. It's on your twig for Fulhamish debut. Much appreciated. Yeah, it's been great to be here. And thank you very much, Jack Collins. No, thank you, George. It's been great to, to, to spend some time with you both. I've, I've really enjoyed that episode. And that, that little this will catch on really did just top it all off. <laughs> we'll be back after the Leeds game. Uh, until then, have a lovely weekend. Come on, you whites. You whites.